Now, most people who know about mountain climbing think it's kind of crazy, but mountain climbing is not. You're trained, you've got ropes, you've got safety lines, you've got etc. Free climbing is without the safety lines, without the rope or any of those things, but you have chalk and you have the right shoes. Uh, insane free climbing is when you try and do that without the ropes, without the, safe, uh, without the safety lines, without the right shoes, without the chalk, and in wet clothing. And that's what we began to do. And at about 120 feet, which if you're not sure what that is, is about 12 stories, I reached for a rock that dislodged a bigger rock that bam, hit me in the face and sent me hurtling down at maximum velocity onto the boulders below. I landed on boulders and got smashed to pieces uh, and uh, completely destroyed my face. Welcome to the Entrepreneur's Organization. We are one E-E-O. Oh, one E-O. EO is the only global network exclusively for entrepreneurs. This collection of membership comes with stories of hard-earned lessons and successes. You're invited to join this movement. And now, your host, David Sturman. Hi, welcome to One EO. I'm David Sturman. I'm the president of EO New York. Today, we have Dov Barron on. Dov is an unbelievable individual. I'm really excited to share with you what he's accomplished, and hopefully he can share with us some of the secrets behind how he's done it. So just to give you a little background on Dov, it's um, a lot to say, but he's twice been named Top 100 Speaker by Inc. Magazine. He's been speaking for over 30 years. He has the number one podcast for Fortune 500. I think on the site, it says you have the number one podcast for leadership in Inc. Is that true, Dov? Yeah, Inc. Magazine made us the number one podcast to listen to uh, for leaders. And we're the number one podcast globally for Fortune 500 listeners. Uh, we uh, go out through terrestrial radio stations and our TV station with close to a million streams a month. So you do it much better than me. So thank you for that. And, <laughs> and, and finally, um, you have a two companies, it looks like. You have Full Monty Leadership and the Authentic Speaker Academy for Leadership. Is that correct? Uh, those, are, those are outlets. So those okay. are both outlets. I do have two companies, but those are two of the outlets. Yeah. And so what are the two companies? So the companies are Dove Baron International and Authentic Paragon Alliance. Okay. And those are speaking speaker companies where you go around to keynotes and educational based companies. Authentic Paragon Alliance is the, is the speaking side of it, speaking and training. So when I speak at conferences, when I speak for companies, when I work with, with executive teams, that's Authentic Paragon Alliance. When people work privately with me, that's under Dove Baron International. So, and a lot of my stuff that is put out there in the world, as in through social media and memes and videos and stuff, goes under Dove Baron International. Um, but my brand name is Full Monty Leadership, which is my website. Got it. So let's we're going to dissect all that, and we're going to dissect your we're going to dissect your bio as well. Cool. Before we do that, I, I always like to start by understanding somebody's origin story. Hmm. Um, and I know part of your story is when you got in your accident and we'll talk about that, sure. but it sounds like you were, when I read in your bio, you were actually speaking before your accident. So yes. what is your origin story to how you got to, I guess, speaking in the first place? The origin story, um, I'll give you the, the quick background that leads to speaking. So I, I uh, was born in the UK, um, lived there for the first 21 years of my life. So I've been gone much longer than I ever lived there. Um, I was born in 
in a ghetto, actually, in abject poverty with violence and crime and addiction all around me and uh, started studying metaphysical and spiritual understanding as a small child. I was fascinated by that world. Um, at 21, left the country and began to travel to study with different teachers around the world. Um, I left the UK, went to France and Italy. Then I was in East Coast Canada for a year. Then I was in Asia, Indonesia. Then I moved to Australia for many years. I lived there. And then I moved to uh, Western Canada. And um, I started speaking in 84 was the first time I spoke. That was the first time I was invited to speak. And uh, that was the beginning of my career. The fall, as you mentioned, was in 1990. So it was six years later. So 84, how old are you? Not trying to figure out your age, but... 18. <laughs> it's easy. I was born in 1958. I'm 60. Okay, so 68, 78. So about 27 years old. So I was 26. I was 26. Okay. Um, yeah, I was so, 26. So that's interesting because it's, it's not as common that you hear somebody who actually starts off their career as a speaker. Um, usually they either are consultant or they have a business similar to many EOers who probably half the EOers that I speak to now, and this is why I thought this was relevant, want mm-hmm. to now write books. Uh, they now right. want to speak and they want to figure out how to build that out there, but they don't do it well. And obviously- well, I was an entrepreneur first. Okay. So before all that. that, I was an entrepreneur. So I had owned businesses in the UK, in Canada and in Australia. Um, so I had run businesses and studied in a parallel world. So I was doing both at the same time. And while I was studying and running my businesses and learning all the things I was learning, that's how I came to speak. Um, so one of, my, one of my customers, who was a good friend of mine, owned a national menswear company in Australia. And he would come in and we'd be, have these uh, great philosophical and, and deep debatable conversations. So again, you know, I was 26 years old. Um, I had been a bodybuilder at that time for about seven years. And when you're in your mid-20s and you're a bodybuilder, it's very important that everybody knows that by wearing shirts that are way too tight. Uh, and that's who I was back in those days. I was a kid and I was, you know, I was showing off my muscles. And, and I had very, it was the 80s. I had had very long hair down to my chest and it was ringlet curls. And I had earrings that were big enough you could hang parrots off them. And, uh, and uh, my buddy said, I want you to come speak to my national managers. And I'm like, about what? <laughs> said, anything you want. And I'm like, well, do you want me to talk about my business or do you want me to talk? And he goes, no, no, I want you to talk about whatever you want. He said, I know you've had businesses in different countries, but I want you to come and talk to them about anything you want. He goes, we have these great conversations. I said, well, how long for? He said, an hour. I was like, oh my God, no, I can't speak for an hour. I'm not a speaker. Now, of course, an hour is a, really a warm up. But <laughs> so it's like, okay. So I agreed to half an hour. But he said, I have one condition. I thought, here we go. I said, what's your condition? He said, you have to come looking exactly like this, the way I was dressed that day. My hair was out, so it was, you know, big, big ringlet curl hair. The earrings were in, the ripped jeans were on, the tight T-shirt was on. Now, what you should know is that I actually wore a lot of suits, and that's how I'd met him. He owned a national menswear company, and he made my suits. That's how I originally met him. But when I wasn't wearing these nice suits, I would wear, you know, like I said, the other clothes. So he said, you got to come dress like this. I said, well, can I put my hair in a ponytail? He's like, nope. I want you to look exactly like this. He was a much smarter guy than me. So I agreed to go and I, put, and I arrived at the day and I put my head in the door and looked at all these guys down this long boardroom table back in the 80s. Everybody looked like Gordon Gecko. They were buttoned up tight. 
and and I put my head in this wild man sticks his head in the door and they look at me and they give what we what we what we call an Aussie I'll give you the the clean version of it which is the bugger off nod which is with the head to the side is like bugger off you're in the wrong place you know and they're not saying anything but they're giving me the the head nod to tell me to get the hell out of there so, so like, you know, get out so um, I just smile and waited and then Steve says uh, let's introduce our speaker and he brings me out and it's like clunk jaws hit the desk everybody's like what the hell right and I get up there and to be honest with you I cannot remember what I spoke about but I can remember clearly how I started um, I walked out it was mid 80s uh, mid early 80s and there was a lot of talk about racism with the First Nation Aboriginal people of Australia were under a lot of pressure. And so my first question was, put your hand up if you're a racist. You know, so I, you know I'm very subtle. So put your hand up if you're a racist. So as you can imagine, nobody put their hand up. So I said, put your hand up if you would judge somebody by the color of the skin or any way that they would appear to look. And of course, nobody put their hand up. And I said, you're a bunch of freaking liars. Every single one of you judged me by the way that I look. You decided my worth, you decided my intelligence, and you decided my income by looking at me. And that is a huge mistake because what you don't know is I'm your customer. That's how I know, Steve, because you make my suits. Now, I don't remember what else I said, and I figured I'd probably shit the bed and I might have upset Steve enormously, but he looked over at me and I, and I looked at him and he had a big smile on his face, clearly much smarter <laughs> than me. No, exactly. And I don't remember what else I said, but I remember that part. And I always say to, when I, when I train people to be speakers, and one of the things I say is, if the story ended there, I would be a hero. Like, wow, you know, knocked it out of the park first time. The story doesn't end there because I'm not a hero, and I'll tell you why because I went away feeling pretty damn good about myself. And about two weeks later, Steve came in and he said, Alistair wants you to speak for his company. Alistair owned another national clothing company. And I was like, great. So what did I do? I went and did my research on speakers. I researched, you know, and at the time it was Jim Rohn, it was, it was Zig Ziglar, it was all those guys. And they were all in uniform, blue suit, white shirt, red tie, patent leather shoes, short haircuts, clean shaven. So what did I do? I cut off my hair, bought a nasty blue suit, white shirt, red tie, patent shoes, and had this ugly ass mustache that looked like an animal had died on top of my lip. And I went out and spoke and I died a death. It was terrible. And it took me about five years, because I'm a nice guy, but a little slow, it took me about five years to work out what the hell I'd done wrong. I traded my authenticity for approval. I love it that's why I speak about authenticity so much is because yeah. I've really got the hardest possible lesson in it. And this is the mistake most people make. You know, one of the things I say to speakers all the time now is, is I'll ask when I'm training speakers, I say, in your normal conversation with your friends, with your partner, do you swear? I actually ask this question. People say, some people say no. Some people say yes. And I say, then if they say yes, I say, do you drop the F-bomb? And some people say yes, and some people say no. And I said, whatever you said, that's okay. But don't try and change it for being on stage because you've heard me or you've heard Gary Vaynerchuk. I don't swear as much as Gary, but, um, but you've heard Gary. So you think it's now the cool thing to do is to speak on stage, and you think that makes you authentic. It makes you completely inauthentic if that's not who you are. So don't swear if you don't swear. So, by the way, I just – I um, I – interviewed Gary on Friday in his oh, office. Oh, cool. 
So that was pretty cool. He, he, we, were, we had a, um, a nonverbal drinking game in our head how many times he would swear to see that. And he, did, he was low energy compared to him, so it was only a couple times. Um, right. So after that original speech, you weren't really speaking. Obviously, there no, was... No, I still was speaking. No, 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 you weren't speaking before that, but obviously you decided, okay, this is what I want to do more often because mm-hmm. you got energy from that. And for the next four or five years, you became a speaker as well as a business owner at that time, or you just performed? Oh, yeah. Okay. No, I, I still own my businesses. I went on two, uh, two speaking tours across Australia. And just, um, just to be honest, the businesses were not speaking businesses. They were other businesses. No, not at all. Okay. So I, you, was, you had, I was in the beauty business. I owned hair salons. So you had figured out at the early age, now, you know, 41, so 27 is young for me, is you figured out how to not be in your business, but work on your business so you could travel and speak at that stage in your, in your career. Yeah. So what had happened was I had a business partner. Um, so I, the businesses I had in the UK and uh, in Canada before I went to Australia, um, those were my own. I worked in them on my own and I ran them and did everything. I worked myself to death. Um, in Australia, um, my best friend and I became business partners. Um, and we both really liked the idea of not killing ourselves in business. So... Uh, we gave ourselves long weekends every other weekend. So it was his long weekend, then the following one was my long weekend, which was a four-day weekend, right? So, How successful did those businesses grow to? Um, each one grew more successful. You know, they were, you know, they, the, the first one was a, was a, um, a self-employed job. Yeah. <laughs> like most people's entrepreneurial adventures. Um, but by the end, um, the salons we had in Australia were in the top five salons in Australia. We were doing uh, half of people like In Excess, for those of people who are old enough to remember that band, and Elle McPherson, and we saw we were having a lot of success. So you were speaking not for necessarily because you needed the income, as a fo- it was supplementary income to your business, correct? Yeah, well, that was the wonderful thing about it was I had a great business partner who had no problem with me taking off for a couple of weeks and going to speak and then come back. And, I, and he would take that time later. And just thinking out loud at that age, mm-hmm. you said you went on a tour across, um, I think, Australia at that time. Yep. Who booked that for you? Did you book it yourself? Did you find I did everything? I did so everything. Go on, I don't think there was Google, but did you, what did you there do? There definitely was no Google. Did you cold call? Uh, companies at that time and just say, no. how did you no. get booked? I had a public seminar business, which I actually had for 20 years, but I had a public seminar business. And so what I did was I booked radio ads. I did film, I filmed TV ads. I took newspaper ads and I booked event places. Um, so for instance, the Southern Cross Hotel in Melbourne, which, so in 1986, uh, was 1987 was $5,000 for the night for the evening. Wow. Right? It was insane. Plus I had TV ads and radio ads. Okay. So you actually, so now that I understand this better, you weren't speaking at companies, you were doing your own seminars and you were yeah. now, you were a business trying to get people to come to visit to, to your business. How did you do during those, those five years before the accident and you, before you found um, Well, there's two phases. So the phase where I'm in Australia, um, the first one I did okay and sort of broke even. 
which was fine. I was okay with that. I still had my other business. And then the second one, um, by the time I went out on the second tour, I got cocky and I actually walked away from my business. I gave my business to my business partner. Um, and he said, listen, work here, uh, work here uh, four days a month and we'll still be partners. Yeah. And he was willing to, con- like, equal split partners. You know, he's like, I love you being here. It's great. You know, I was like, no, I, you know, I, I burned the ships before I could sight the land. Stupid move. I agree with, I agree with burning the ships, but not while you're in the water. <laughs> <laughs> so I burned the ships in the, of the ocean. Yeah. <laughs> a little different. Yeah. Um, so I gave the business to him. I went out on the second tour and got very close to bankruptcy. Yeah. Like just because I spent so much money. And back in those days, like I said, it was, there, was no, there was no online. There was no video. I was going out, being in cities and having to live in that city for a month at a time to teach. And, and I want to dive in a little bit more here because the reason this is important to me, um, obviously things were different in the 80s, but the origin story, because a lot of entrepreneurs now are going through what you went through in your 20s, trying to figure out how to turn and I'm one of them, by the way, how to turn what they're doing into a speaking um, education business. And for many of us, including me, it's because I can't help myself. I can't stop but want to teach and share knowledge. It's, I can't turn it off if I wanted to. And I feel like, obviously, you've, <laughs> you look like you're, you can relate to that. Um, yep, absolutely. So, so during this time... Uh, during this five years and you went around uh, speaking, what was, where did you get your content from? Did you just make it up on your own? Like how much, how many different lectures did you have or did you have one thing that you put together and you used that the whole time? No. Uh, I, even when I started, I had a massive background. So as I said, I'd been studying. I'd studied, um, so I started out studying uh, metaphysical studies, metaphysical philosophy. So Vedanta, which is Hindu philosophy, Buddhism, the Tao, Gnostic Christianity, and Kabbalah. So those were all my backgrounds. Uh, Then I got interested in psychology because I was meeting all these spiritual people who really could not get their shit together. And I was fascinated by how they were so spiritually enlightened, but really couldn't hold the job and couldn't hold the relationship and couldn't make any money. So I became interested in psychology. Um, then I studied to become a counselor and became a therapist and studied, fi- uh, studied family dynamics. And uh, then while studying that, uh, translated over and started studying this, what was then called the psychology of excellence. Today it's called the psychology of leadership. Um, started studying the psychology of excellence. And then in 84, uh, became very interested in quantum physics and studied. And then I saw the connection between quantum physics, metaphysics, and psychology. Um, and so when I went out to speak, I spoke about the mind and about psychology and about quantum fields and how we were impacting quantum fields. I mean, in 84, this stuff was like insane, you know, and I was like, what the hell are you talking about? My father heard one of my ads on radio and called my girlfriend and asked if I was teaching black magic. That kind of gives you a clue. <laughs> well, just, just for those people who don't understand, of course I understand, but just the, the- <laughs> The 10-second version, if I'm a fourth grader, what is quantum physics? Quantum physics, so, so physics is at the simplest level, you know, you think about physics, that you've got something in front of you that's solid and you know enough from science to break it down into the smallest particle 
And when you get to the smallest particle, that's physics, how, how particles interact with each other. Quantum physics is beyond that. So when things cease to be solid and become a wave function. So in quantum physics, the, the, the uh, Copenhagen debate that started, I think it was uh, two, uh, 1920, um, 19... Don't forget, I'm a fourth grader right now. You're talking right, about... Yeah, so, yeah, so um, the simplest way is to, to think of it is that everything that's, that you see as solid is not solid. Everything that you see as solid is actually a frequency. So what I say to people is... Everything is energy. Well, yeah, but even, even but as a science here, rather than a woo-woo knew it. So what, what I mean by that is, if I say to you, um, are you in front of me right now, David? The answer is no. Then how are you able to see me and how are you able to hear me? And the answer is, you know, it's through frequency. You know, there's a frequency that's set up that allows us to tune into each other. Well, what if that's true between you and all things? And what if that's true between you and your reality and how you tune in? So what I say is the way to understand uh, your impact on the quantum field is as simple as this. Get in your car, turn the radio station to rock and roll, and you'll hear rock and roll, right? And you go, yeah. And I go, are you ever upset that they don't play Mozart? And you go, no. And I say, why? Because that's the station that plays rock and roll, right? You go, yeah. Would you be upset at it? No, no of course not. What would you have to do if you wanted to hear Mozart? You go, I'd have to change the station. That's quantum physics. What you're tuned into is what you get. So my, my way of looking at that is, so thank you. That was definitely a fourth grader explanation. I totally got it. Um, and there's, there's a book, and I'm not remembering the name of it right now, but it's, I don't know, I'm sure you've seen like, uh, or someone's done this to you. Look around your room right now, and I want you to remember everything that's blue, right? Yeah, and filters. you go around and you do that. And then, of course, you ask them, what's, tell me everything that was yellow. And they don't know. Or if you're losing your hair, all of a sudden you, you notice all the guys that are bald. Or if you get a yellow Ferrari, you notice all the yellow Ferraris. It's that same type of thing. Got it. So, well, that, that's actually, that's rather than quantum physics, that's actually psychology. That's the, <laughs> sorry. That, that's, the that's the reticulatory activated system of the brain. So your, 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 your RAS, R-A-S, so your reticulatory activated system of the brain means that if you buy a Corolla and you're suddenly out on the road, you're like, Jesus, there's a lot of Corollas. It's because your mind is actually now focused on that. Right. See, the thing about the mind is the mind is designed to keep you safe. And how it keeps you safe is it looks for the familiar and it notices what's not familiar. That's all it's ever doing. It's looking for what matches and what doesn't match. So when you drive your Corolla, you're noticing Corollas. You wouldn't notice them before because you didn't care. So my, your answer to my question is you're wicked smart. Now, your, the answer to my question is you, you, this is what you do. You, I mean, you, you've been through classes. You're very interested in learning all these things that deal with how people interact with each other and how they think and how the world interacts. So most people don't do that. So there is a world of material that you can put together. So that totally makes sense to me. Now let's go to 1990. Um, tell me, you know, I've only know what I've read. So I'm uh, sure. interested to hear how that was, what happened and how that was pivotal to your, your career. Sure. Well, by then, I'd, as you said, by then I'd moved to North America. I was living in Canada. Um, I'd been over here a couple of years. I was having enormous success. I was really on the fast track speaking wise. I was, by then I'd learned to be a little more authentic and I was back, back, on, back on track a little bit. And um, 
uh, I was on speaking tours, booked months in advance for interviews, radio, TV, newspapers, all those kinds of things, and came back. I was exhausted. And I had a manager. She booked me four days off. For a friend and I, we went up to uh, Whistler, which some people will know was the place where the Winter Olympics were held in 2010. It had been a very wet spring, but it was a beautiful June day. And uh, I, at that time, was a full-blown adrenaline jug- junkie. My, my drug of tro- choice was definitely adrenaline. And we went to a place called Brandywine Falls, which is a 200-foot waterfall. It's magnificent. It's spectacular. You can see it from the top, but we, being crazy, hiked down to the bottom, which is not, you know, there's no path, but we got down there. When we got down to the bottom, um, I challenged my buddy to go behind the waterfall. Now, there's a very small gap to get in there, but you've actually got to fight a 70-mile-an-hour wind that's coming at you with that spray, and you're walking over slippery, wet rocks and all the rest of it. But we got behind and when I came out on the other side, I felt like Superman, I felt like I could do anything. I'm full of adrenaline. All the negative ions from the, from the water has given me lots of positive energy. I'm feeling fantastic. And I said to my buddy, let's not hike. And he goes, well, what are we gonna do? And I go, let's climb the face. Now, most people who know about mountain climbing think it's kind of crazy, but mountain climbing is not. You're trained, you've got ropes, you've got safety lines, you've got et cetera. Free climbing is without the safety lines, without the rope or any of those things, but you have chalk and you have the right shoes. Uh, insane free climbing is when you try and do that without the ropes, without the, safe, uh, without the safety lines, without the right shoes, without the chalk, and in wet clothing. And that's what we began to do. And then about 120 feet, which if you're not sure what that is, is about 12 stories. I reached for a rock that dislodged a bigger rock that bam, hit me in the face and sent me hurtling down at maximum velocity onto the boulders below. I landed on boulders and got smashed to pieces uh, and uh, completely destroyed my face. As I like to say, I fell 120 feet from a self-imposed pedestal and landed on my ego. <laughs> so I wow. got pretty, pretty do you, do you messed remember, up. Do you remember any of that day? Or? I remember some things of the day. People ask me about the fall. I don't remember because the rock that hit me in the face knocked me unconscious and saved my life. So I think I was pretty floppy. Because you were limp, yeah. Yeah, so I was limp. So I fell backwards and halfway down clipped my hip, which flipped me over, so I landed on my face. Um, So uh, I don't remember anything about that. I do remember coming around, um, and I do remember uh, just some weird metaphysical things, like so you don't move somebody who's fallen. My buddy was with me, and he had scrambled down to get me, and I'm laid in a pool of my own blood, and he said, uh, I, like, I felt like my head was underwater because I could hear all this liquid, and then what it was, yeah, and, yeah. and it was blood in every orifice of my... And, and somehow I mumbled, move me, and you don't do that, but he did. He picked me up, and he literally moved me, and like three feet, and then the rock face that I'd been climbing on crumbled and buried the place I'd just been. Wow. Uh, and eventually, you know, we got out and I was transported to the mountain hospital and uh, the 10 to 12 reconstructive surgeries later. Wow. So what, what impact did that have moving forward for you as a speaker? It had massive impact um, and it had no impact. So <laughs> let me be, I want to be clear about this because I think these things happen and people go, oh, it must have changed your life. And the answer is at the time it didn't it intensified my ego. See, when people would say to me, how you doing after I fell, with my jaw wide closed, I'd say, I'm great, I'm great, I'm coming back. And it was ego, it was bravado. 
meanwhile, in the quiet of my own time, I would be deeply, darkly depressed, feeling like a complete victim and devastated and not feeling like I could even laugh. Uh, I was just so deeply angry and sad. And about nine months in, interesting gestation period, about nine months in, I'd been out of, with my buddies and invited me out. I went for a night out, this great night out. Um, and I'd actually laughed. And I was like, oh, yeah, maybe there's hope, you know, maybe there's hope. And I came home in this really good mood, opened my door, and looked across the kitchen, and there's garbage festooned everywhere. There's meat wrappers, there's coffee grinds, there's empty cans, and the place is gr smells gross. And I knew exactly who the culprit was. And I went, I mean, I went from being in a great mood to being enraged, not angry, enraged. And as I got into the living room, there on the couch, all curled up, was the culprit. And I lifted my hand to just, I was going to strike. And about halfway down, I stopped for some reason, and I touched my cat. This was a cat I did not like. It was a cat that had been given to me by somebody else, by a girlfriend who was trying to get back into my life. And I touched this cat, and I picked this cat up in my arms, and it was cold. And the cat was dead. And I fell to my knees and began to not cry, but weep like that. <gasps> Just deep sobbing, crying. And it was a few minutes in, and I realized, why am I crying over a cat I don't like? I didn't miss this cat. I complained about this cat every day. What? And I realized I was crying for the loss of the life that I had had. And I fell into a very dark place and spent many hours in the fetal position and then realized that there were three paths in front of me. The path to get back, which I realized was never going to happen. There is no back. That's not how life works. There's only an evolution forward. So that wasn't going to work. The most seductive path was to stay in the present of being a victim because I had very good reason to quit now. I had very good reason to say, you know, it's not my fault. This happened to me, blah, blah, blah. And the third path was terrifying, which was to move forward, but to find out the purpose of my life, the meaning of my life. Why am I here really? Why do I stand on the stage really? Why do I reach out to help people really? What is it really about? What's really driving me? What are the inadequacies I'm trying to overcome? What, what is the message that I really want to send? And that put me on a journey to find my purpose. And that is what I do to this day. I work with individuals and companies to become purpose-driven because I know the impact of that on my life and on the companies. And, you know, now, this, uh, now it's kind of cool. There's a bunch of great stats on it, but back in those days, it wasn't. That's a great story. Um, and obviously, um, you know, you've, you've thought about this a lot. What's the, the struggle between having the impact versus um, getting uh, the, the ego of it all, of getting the views, getting the mm -hmm. revenue to the millions of people. You know, you see someone like Simon Sinek. So I interviewed Simon Sinek 11 years ago before he even started. And he said he was going to do a, a TED Talk. He was going to write a book. And now you see what he's done over the, these years. And I'm like, wow, I think I could be Simon Sinek. And do, do you mm -hmm. ever feel that way about yourself? And how does that play into that? Not, well, Simon's pretty interesting. Maybe I can be half of him, but still, I would, I would like to think that I could be of that, you know, public area. And you think, okay, well, all it took was one TED, TEDx and that helped push him out there. So I'm wondering how you think about yourself in that regard. Um, well, 
if I may, I think that that's completely incorrect. Great. It wasn't a TED Talk and it wasn't a book. So first of all, uh, Simon worked with Mark Levy, who's a friend of mine, who you may know, yep. uh, who wrote Accidental Genius. And Mark is the one who helped him to come up with it, um, start with why. That's where he got that from. Um, but as we all know, uh, most people have only heard of Simon Sinek in the last two to three years. But you just said it. You interviewed him 11 years ago. Every overnight success takes 10 years. Um, and for God's sake, please don't try and be another Simon Sinek because I promise you, you won't be. There's only one Simon and Simon does a great job of being Simon. And people say to me, well, you know, you do purpose work. Is that like Simon Sinek's why? And I go, listen, I love Simon Sinek's why. It's a great book and I highly recommend that you read it. And that's where you start with me. My stuff is finding the why of your why. What's deeper than that? Yeah. What's your unconscious psychological drivers? I'm never going to be Simon. Years ago, I was, in a, I was in a mastermind group with some very powerful individuals, and we're all sitting around, and the, the guy who was facilitating was great, and he said, you know, just speak, everybody just go around two minutes, speak about your big dream. And everybody's going around, and I'm about halfway around the room, and I'm getting caught in the momentum of everybody. You know, this is a very long time ago, and I said, you know, I want to be the next Tony Robbins. All right? And... Um, everybody went around and we took a break and I went to the bathroom and I'm standing next to a friend of mine and he showed me because that was great really he goes yeah I can see you as the next Tony Robbins and I and you know I have the energy and I certainly have the knowledge and I have all those kinds of things and I stood there having a pee and looked at him and went you know what I'm a liar and he goes what do you mean you're a liar I said I have no interest in being the next Tony Robbins and he goes why I said because Tony's great at being Tony I want to be the next Dove Baron, the only Dove Baron, because what I do is different than everybody else, and I know that. So part of the thing is that we all, and it's important that you, you look at somebody and you aspire to somebody, but you have to find what's unique about you. And I don't mean that in a, um, in a what's you know, the interesting twist on your brand. I mean, what is it that makes David David, that's essence work. That's the purpose. When you go to that, you, your point of differentiation is so crystal clear because people all the time say, oh, you know, I'm talking about purpose. And I go, mm -hmm, okay. There's a guy who asked me for help who lives in my city, asked me for help. I gave him half an hour of my time as a gift to him, ripped off everything I said, built a website, did everything like that, is speaking in my city using my material and initially, I found out through somebody else who lives in the city. And I listened, and initially, I was pissed off because I gifted him this. And then I went, you know what? You're never going to be me. Yeah. You've not got my years of experience. You've not got my where I come from. It, and, and it's great. You know, good. Those people's lives you're going to touch. So be you. Be the best version of you. And that's what always works. Ted Turner um, shared a story that I read about his father, who um, just before he, his father committed suicide, and mm -hmm. just before he committed suicide, he told Ted, never set a goal in your life that you can achieve, because as soon as you do, you'll, you'll be empty. And, and so Ted set off a goal that was to, you know, he built, he bought a billboard company I think in the sixties for a million dollars and to create a media empire. And of course mm -hmm. he went across and did that. And we mentioned Gary V before his goal, his North star is 
buying the Jets. And it's not necessarily about buying the Jets, but it's about the, the process of buying the Jets. Do you have a, a North Star that is something that you feel is so far away from being accomplished that keeps you driving about sort of that, whether it's a media company or buying the Jets, that's something that drives you as concrete as that? As you know, I work with very high-level individuals who are very successful, and they usually come to me when they've done those kinds of things. They, they're the people that other people look at and go, I want to be you when I grow up. And they, and they come to me because they've seen, they've worked with a bunch of coaches or whoever it is, and they've got, you know, they bought the, that fancy car, and there's something missing, and they want to find out what it is. Um, and what, I've, what I know for sure is that when we set those goals, they are a setup for 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 emptiness because those goals don't fill us and you just said it very clearly particularly about about gary is i've always said that the purpose of a goal is not to achieve it but for it to refine you in the process of achieving it so i'm always setting that goal that will refine me i'm always saying okay if i'm going to be if I'm going to become this best part of myself, if I'm going to really tap into my deep greatness, what's the next level of that? And so my journey is always internal before it becomes external. So I go to that and go, okay, so what would I have to do in the world in order to really do that? So, you know, it's interesting that I set this piece up around myself and inadvertently I've been, inadvertently my, one of my team said to me, you do realize you created a media company. And I said, yeah, I never thought about it, but that's exactly what I've done in the process of developing this. So I have a TV channel, I have, I'm on TV channels, I have my podcast, I have radio shows, I have you know, my outlets, my publications, all those different things. I've created a media company, but it was never the intention to create a media company. It was the intention to be this part of myself. So I looked at a part of myself and went, what needs to get really strong? What needs to get really powerful for me to have the impact? Because for me, it's always about purpose, and impact because as a leader in whatever framework you're in if you you have to lead yourself first and then you have to lead others but as a leader you are having impact and you have yeah. to decide on the kind of impact you want to have and the and you know you can be dove baron at the first speaking engagement totally authentic or dove baron at the second speaking engagement which is who do i need to be and let me pretend to be that as opposed to let me aspire to the best of that I can relate to what you said because recently what I realized is I'm on my journey right now. And as I told you, I'm finishing a book. And to me, that's the best therapy you can do is write a book. Um, what I realized in 20 years, when I look back where I'm going to determine if I've given it my all and if I'm successful, it's not about what I've accomplished. To me, it's going to be about how many times I was able to get out of my comfort zone and how long I was able to stay there. Because for me, the more you're out of your comfort zone, the bigger your comfort zone will get. And that's what energizes me. Um, so it sounds kind of similar to what you're saying. Uh, you're not it's very similar. I want to give you, uh, as, as I told you, Mark Levy's a friend of mine, and he gave me, he said something once. Uh, I interviewed him as, you know, as a guest on my show. That's actually how we met years ago. Um, and, and we talked about pushing yourself. And Mark's a genius, there's no doubt about it. We talked about pushing yourself and expanding yourself. And, uh, and I said, do you find, this is in a, in a private conversation, I said, do you find that people are really impressed by you? And, you know, Mark is, is funny, and he says, uh, he says, 
Yeah. Why wouldn't they be? <laughs> right. And, he does, and, there's no, and it's wonderful because there's absolutely no ego in it. It's just a statement of fact. Yeah, why wouldn't they be? You know, and we were talking about it, and I said, you know, I said, um, he said, but people are very impressed by you. And I said, yeah, I guess. And we, you know, so you live how you live, and, and, and we're all looking at everybody else objectively, but we, we can't do that with ourselves. We're subjective in our own reality. And so Mark put it the best I've ever heard it. He said, if people are impacted and inspired by you and the way you live, but you're not, you're playing small. I love it. I was like, for me, I was like, bam, that's it. Because a lot of times people send me, wow, Dove, how do you do this? Wow, Dove, how do you do that? And it can be in the same moment that a moment before I was thinking, shit, I'm really not doing much. I'm really not pushing myself. I'm not stretching myself. But that's also the entrepreneur's curse where you're, you're not in the moment and you're always thinking about what you can have in the future. And I think uh, many entrepreneurs, because in general, we all go through this complex where everyone's like, look what you've accomplished. I'm like, yeah, but I, I, I should be over here, wherever that over here is. So I would also say that's completely normal. Uh, yeah, but it's, it's, not about, it's not about what I should be doing. I don't give a shit about what I should be doing. What I care about is, you know, for me, there are certain principles that I live by. And one of those principles is courage. So if people are inspired by what I'm doing, but I know I'm not being courageous, then I'm a fucking coward. Got it. That's the bottom line. That's not about entrepreneurship. That's not about right, so not being satisfied. This is about, am I calling myself out on being a coward? Let's put it on the table right now. Where, where do you think you should be being more courageous than right now? Um, that's really simple because I got called out on it very recently, which is I don't charge enough. Got it. I charge way too little. I get told by all my peers who, who know me well, who will say like, I can't believe that you actually work for that fee. And it's like my own childhood shit comes up and I have to constantly address that and deal with that. Got it. Anything else? Uh, where I need to be more courageous? Uh, for me, it's always... It's a daily. So what I mean by that is um, I need to be more courageous about being organized. I'm very not an organized person. I have to have organized people around me to keep me organized. My desktop looks like a shit show. Um, I'm not that person. I'm an artist. I'm, that's my first and foremost. I'm an artist. I'm a creative. So it's much easier for me to create than it is for me to organize. And, that, and, it's a, it's an, and one of the things I say is that courage is an act it is a subjective act. And what I mean by that is there are things that are courageous to you that are not courageous to me, but you'll look at me doing them and think it's really courageous. So people go, oh my God, how do you stand on the stage and speak with all those thousands of people or to, with that person on stage before you or after you? It's like, it's not courageous for me. But organizing my desktop, that's extremely courageous for me. 100%. Okay, let's talk about um, top 100 leader speaker, top 100 motivational speaker. Now, from my experience, um, to get that, at least, obviously, you've had to earn that. But is that something you applied for? Like, take us through if I, what I need to do if I'm in the beginning of my speaking career, which I am, and that is, let's say, a goal of mine. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I have a very successful business. I don't plan on selling the business. I keep up doing both. How do I get to that? What, what, what steps should I get to to get to that level? Um, okay. The actual break it down to the bones, right? So break it down to the bones is um, pick something to speak about. Uh, don't pick something generic. Pick something preferably controversial. And by that, not controversial because it's controversial, but because it's controversial because you deeply believe in it. Become um, insanely obsessed with learning about that thing and know the counter arguments. Okay. I used to do an event called, called First Access. I would sit in a room in a university with a completely open forum. Anybody could come. And for two days, I would sit and answer questions. You could ask me anything. I mean, obviously, I didn't answer on stocks and, uh, stocks and, and trading because I don't know that. But anything in the realm of human dynamics, psychology, leadership, etc., you could ask me anything. And it went into the philosophical, and you could ask me anything. Because I, I'm no, I don't need to learn. I want to learn. People say to me, why do you learn? Because I love it. I mean, I'm just, if you're not, if you're not, if you, if you can't talk about some depth of what it is you're talking about in 20 years from now, that's not your subject. So it might not be in the same framework because you will have deepened your knowledge. But if you can't be excited about speaking about that in 20 years, don't do it. So number one, find that. Number two, in making a sausage, what is your personal story in the context of your subject? Now, see what I said, personal story in the context of. Mm -hmm. What we call that is we call it your full Monty story. If you haven't got my last book called Fiercely Loyal, in the back of that book, I actually give you the structure for developing your full Monty story. I actually lay it out. Go buy the book, and it'll actually give you the actual steps. It's the same steps I teach in the Authentic Speaker Academy for Leadership, whether that's as a group or whether I speak with, teach it individually. Follow those steps, map it out. But, the, but here's the key. A Full Monty story, if you saw the movie Full Monty, it's about strippers, about male strippers who should not take their clothes off. And I use that as an analogy because you will feel like I should not reveal this. It's being absolutely vulnerable on that stage, not to demean yourself, but so that the audience can see your humanity in the context of your subject. Don't be vulnerable about shit that doesn't matter because you'll just look like you're trying to impress people. You have to be vulnerable about something in the context. So then deliver your full month, work out your full Monty story. It's designed in, in the book, uh, Fiercely Loyal, to be a 20-minute presentation. That's the way I designed it. You deliver that. Once you, once you get that, here's the simplicity of it. This is, the, this is the tough stuff. Go out and speak. You want to be a speaker? Speak. Speak for your mom. Speak for your granny. Speak for the, the children's school. Speak for... Um, the small groups or whatever it is, just go out and speak. And I was, and people say, well, should I speak to the audience I'm aimed at? No, 
speak to a massive variety of audiences. Go speak to school kids and speak to everybody because then you'll learn to get out of the rigidity because too often speakers go out and they practice and practice and practice and they become verbatim and it's terrible. They know every word and it's so emotionally dead. But if you're standing in front, a bun, a, a, in front of a bunch of, I've done this by the way, if you're standing in front of a bunch of, of 14 year olds who think you're the, anything but cool, they are not paying attention. So you have to move on the fly and adapt. And if you at the same time go speak to a bunch of people, and I've done this, who are 70 years old plus, and they start the meeting by telling you who's dead and who's been hospitalized, I did that meeting, <laughs> you are going to have to adapt on the fly. And I assume you mean non-paid speaking gigs. Uh, totally. totally. How, give me a number, just make up a number the best that you can. Is it 100 non-paid speaking gigs? Is it 20? Is it 10? Until you feel like, okay, now I'm ready to start. Uh, putting my name out there for, unless somebody reaches out to you, but how many times are you trying to just hone your craft? Um, I think that, I think that the, it's, a, it's the middle ground. I think that a lot of people just speak forever for nothing uh, and they lose all their value. Yeah. And on the other side, people want to charge $5,000 the first time they go out and you're like, yeah, you're not worth that, mate. So what you've got to do is you've got to go out and you've got to do enough that you feel confident in your subject and the delivery of that subject. And what do I mean by that? You have to record every presentation. Record it all. They say, well, we don't allow cameras. I, I just did one recently. I record everything I did. I just spoke for the Royal Bank of Canada. They said, we don't allow cameras. I go, that's okay. I ain't filming you. And they go, what do you mean? I promise I won't include the audience and it will never be released. It's for me because I watch it back. I watch it back and look at what I need to refine, not to memorize, but refine. Yeah. So you watch it back and you, so you record them all. Now here's the cool thing is when you become a speaker, all those little shitty gigs you did, every now and then you deliver a 20 second diamond yeah. that you didn't plan. And that's a grab for your sizzle reel later. Right? So you do all those until you build that confidence. And if you're going to be realistic and, you know, you have a full-time business and a family, are you thinking, and again, you can't, uh, one speech uh, a month, one a week, like, it depends how fast you want to get going. But in general, I, these things are, are probably not, you know, you got you to gotta just cold call and, and submit to many different places uh, to get uh, speaking to you. So if you're speaking once a month, Forget about it. Yeah. It's an interesting hobby. Good for you. That's great. But it's a hobby. But if you want to be a speaker, you have got to get out and be speaking at least once a week minimum. Minimum. So you will have to sacrifice time. Minimum. Because this is a muscle that you must train. I do a training for, for podcasting and I, I teach people how to podcast, how to be hosts and how to be, how to be guests. And it's called podcast superstar. I train people to do this because people think, Oh, I'm a speaker. I can do podcasts. No, you can't. You're awful. And they go, well, I've, I've been speaking for 10 years. Great. How many podcasts have you done? Three. Come back to me when you've done 50. Yeah. I don't have, you can't even get on my show unless you've done 50. Because people, because people think because they've done something similar, they can yeah. do the same. I'd done thousands of interviews before I had my own show. And when I had my own show, I thought, oh, this will be easy. I went into my studio 
to do the first radio show. I went in, you know, back then my hair was a little bit longer. It was slicked back, you know, and I, I was dressed nice. And I came out and my wife went, what the hell happened to you? I was in my underwear. My hair was a, like a wild man. Because during the show, I was so nervous. I was stripping off. Because <laughs> well, it's okay. a totally different gig. Now you make me feel very insecure about this show, but it's okay. I'm an amateur and I'm, I'm proud to, to say that I am. Um, all right, so we got number one, uh, controversial to you. Number two, the full Monty. Number three, go out and speak. What's number four? So as you go out, uh, number four, as I said, is review what it is you've done. Okay. So you've got to review it and refine it. So here's the hard part about reviewing and refining. It's like you're writing your book. It's like editing. The stuff you think is really important that nobody gives a shit about. And that's the hard choice. Like, this is a great joke. Why is nobody laughing? Because it ain't funny. Yeah. That's the bottom line, because it isn't funny. Right? Or, or, like, for me, because I'm not from North America, a lot of my stuff is really funny if I was in Australia or if I was in the UK. But people here don't get it, and I have to change it. And it's like, yeah, but that's really funny. And I noticed somebody in the audience who's howling laughing because they're a pommy, they're a Brit, they're a Aussie, right? But the rest of the audience don't get it, and it's, it's okay. So I, that's not the audience's fault. That's my fault. I got to take it out. There's something I say that's very profound, but people don't get it. So I got to, as you said, back to fourth grade. How do I get it back to that? So this is one of the things, too, that I find with speakers is a lot of the time as a speaker – you want to deliver something to look smart. And what you've got to do is deliver something that makes you helpful. So here's, I'm going to give you now some very big clues. Heart over hype. Every time. Heart over hype. Every motivational speaker in the world is a suntan. Within a couple of hours, it's all worn off. It was very nice, but it's worn off. Go to the heart of the matter. Stop trying to be smart. Choose heart over smart. If, you're tr if you look smart, if people are coming up to you, wow, you're really intelligent, that's a bad presentation. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because uh, by the time this book comes out, I'll have written it five times. And the line that I'm drawing in the sand is, would I want to pick up my book now and also in 20 years from now and will I, will I actually use my book for myself and mm -hmm. if I, the answer is no it's just it's i think it's more hype than heart um and to use your words uh, when yeah. do you start podcasting when should someone start podcasting yeah, like right away like it seems like this as is, a guest you're talking about no as a host as a when should somebody start having a podcast correct like, um in, in these steps is this are they, can they happen at the same time? Because that helps yeah, you. It can happen practice. at the same time. But, you know, again, it's going to take time. It's going to take commitment. It's going to take effort, all those things. And you've got to look at what your priorities are. Um, so, you know, I think that, you know, what is your book on, David? What are you writing about? You're asking me now? So yeah. it, it's called The Fast Forward Mindset. It's, yep. uh, it's how to get out of your comfort zone and stay there longer. So, right. So ultimately, so, so, my, my vulnerability is how I sucked as a leader. I had three COOs in six years that all crashed and burned. And I finally, I had this moment where I'm like, I can't fucking repeat this again. And I was at, like, I was desperate for a solution. And it was that desperation. And 
and I interviewed entrepreneurs. I've been an EO where, where I found the, the path, which has led me to a lot of really interesting things as well. Right. But it's not falling off you, a cliff. Right. Exactly. So what did you just say the sub, the sub, the subtitle is? How to, fast how, to get, how to get out of your comfort zone and stay there longer. Right. So if you're going, so here's the clue for anybody. Your talk is a book, whoever you are, whatever it is, your talk is a book. If you haven't got your talk down and you, and you won't for a while, it's okay. So think of it as a book. So you think of your title of your talk as a book title. Sure. Think of your subtitle of your book as in the message you want to deliver. Okay. And then if you want to start a podcast, your podcast is the same title as your book and your subtitle. And then you only interview people about the title of your book and your subtitle. Right. Don't interview them about anything else because then you've got incredible references for your presentations. You have incredible references for your books. So listen, you know, I, I'm on this, uh, I'm on this fast track, fast forward, you know, this is what it is. So tell me, Fred, how did you fast track? How do you get out of your comfort zone? What pushes you? So if you're going to do it, you use it as a support system for your presentation, not as a separate. And, and I know I started out when I started, because I've been podcasting 10 years, I started out, it had nothing to do with what I was doing. It was just like, okay. And so it became another machine on its own that really was disconnected. And it took me a long time to pull it back in. So start right at the beginning. And again, with podcasting, don't, tr don't worry about it if you've got three listeners. That's okay. Yeah. You're going to get practiced at doing it. The thing I'll, I'll, I guess I'll, I'll end on for this podcast one interesting thing about doing all these podcasts and even us connecting virtually here with our frequencies, right? I'm trying. Yep, you got it. Is building relationships. Tell me a little bit to, to sum it up about how podcasting has helped you connect and how has that helped you in your business, in your professional life, in your personal life by, yes, you're asking about that one thing, but you're also connecting with a lot of people throughout that process. You know, I was meeting with a bunch of my business friends recently who said, I was, to be honest with you, I was quite shocked. And every one of them said, do you realize that about 40% of my business is built on you? And I'm like, what are you talking about? And this is the relationships you've introduced me to. Um, podcasting has been phenomenal for that. I mean, with over 500 interviews, I've interviewed amazing people uh, from around the world in a bunch of different backgrounds. Uh, the thing about podcasting is that it gives you a leverage point to be introduced to somebody that you would never normally get. Uh, you know, I have a, I actually have a press card now because I've been doing it so long and I have my radio show. Um, that gives you access that you wouldn't normally get. I mean, social media has given us access we wouldn't normally get before, but I think it's been phenomenal. But, you know. But I'll say this, as somebody interviewing you right now, I, you know, it has to be the right interview. I actually feel personally connected to you from your story. I feel like you're a friend and I truly do feel that way from hearing what you had to say, from you being vulnerable, from you helping me. I am sure it's just opened up from a personal level, the friends and the love and the energy that you've, you've, you've connected with so many people, which, which is a side or maybe even more than a side benefit. Then I, I think it's much more than a side benefit for me. You know, I, I, I I spell, I spell leadership with an R and I say often, you know, it's, it's relationship. You know, my skill set 
is actually helping people understand what emotionally drives them, their unconscious drivers, to have the relationships they have, whether those relationships are fucked up or they're spectacular, how to have them be spectacular, and the willingness to actually become better at relationships. And I think that podcasting teaches you, forces you, to become connected to other people and serve them in a way. So relationship is first and foremost about you got to get centered with yourself. And secondly, it's about how can I serve that individual? And it's also about... Sorry? I was trying to prove a point, but I interrupted you in what I was going to say, which was you also have to be a really good listener, but I interrupted you. So I kind of killed my... <laughs> but uh, you're absolutely right. It's, yeah. it's about... But it's, it's not just... See, you know, people talk about this and they don't get it. So, you, go, you know, you've got to be a really good listener. And so they sit and they don't say anything. And, and, but it's also a dynamic. So you have to be able to sit and listen. But you also have to be willing to be spontaneous when, you're, when, when, when somebody says something that inspires you. So it's like, what is the, it's a dance. And again, 10,000 hours of practice of learning that dance. So there are times when I'm interviewing somebody and I'm just sitting there and I'm very quiet. And other points where I'll interrupt them two or three times yeah. because it's a wonderful dynamic. That's not wrong. That's actually showing rapport and built the, how rapport is built. 100%. So you're absolutely right. And, it, and you're absolutely right in that many of the people who are my friends, uh, many of them started out as podcast guests. It's 100%. That's how life is. Mm -hmm. all, this, a lot of, all the success that I've had, I had a TV show I was telling you on public access 11 years ago that everything, believe it or not, was a derivative from that TV show, from all the relationships I have to the current business I have today to being president of EO came from that TV show. I believe you. That can be, hopefully, uh, I think we're doing it, I have to set a time to do an interview on your show. I can explain how that happened. But you've inspired me today, Dov, and I really appreciate it. And I know you're going to inspire whoever watches or listens to this in EO. So thank you for your time. Thank you, David. I want to thank you for having me on. I want to thank you for inviting me to be of service to you and to your audience. And I do want to say this to your audience, if that's okay. Please. I want to say this. I want to say, listen, you know, David takes the time to go out, find great guests to share with you. To, you know, this, this isn't a paid gig. This is something he's doing to be of service. And it needs... You know, we, we human beings are interactive. So you need to let him know that he's having impact. You need to go to iTunes, rate, review, subscribe to the show, share the show with others. Write to David, write to me. I'll give you my personal email address, dov, D-O-V, at D-O-V-B-A-R-O-N.com. Write to David, write to me, CCS. Tell us what you've got out of this show. Tell us what you're going to do with it. Because information is with the hole in the donut. Transformation comes from application. So write to us, tell us what you're going to do with it, how you're going to use it. And if I can help you, you can write to me. And if I can serve you in some way, that's fine too. But like appreciate the guys putting the time and the energy into this. And, and you can find great value here if you would just not have it on in the background, but actually make it something you do something with. Great. That's the perfect way to end it. Thank you so much. The world's most influential community of entrepreneurs. We are one E-E-O. One E-O. Thank you for listening to the One EO Podcast. Our hope is that you're inspired because it's that element that gets entrepreneurs moving. If you aren't a member of EO yet, you can visit eonetwork.org to learn more. That's www.eonetwork.org. 
That's the letter E, the letter O, network.org. If you are a member of EO and wants to know more about how to get involved with One EO Podcast, contact Steve Distante or John Todavia, your chapter's rep. Please take the time to subscribe and leave a five-star review on whatever channel you're listening to this on right now. EO is in a position to be in that leadership role that our world needs today. Leading by example, we are One EO.